0: section five of a social history of the american negro by benjamin griffith brawley this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three part one the revolutionary era one sentiment in england and america the materialism of the eighteenth century with all of its evils at length produced a liberalism of thought that was to shake to their very foundations old systems of life in both europe and america the progress of the cause of the negro in this period is to be explained by the general diffusion of ideas that made for the rights of man everywhere cowper wrote his humanitarian poems in close association with the romanticism of the day the missionary movement in religion began to gather force and the same impulse which in england began the agitation for a free press and for parliamentary reform and which in france accounted for the french revolution in america led to the revolt from great britain no patriot could come under the influence of any one of these movements without having his heart and his sense of justice stirred to some degree in behalf of the slave at the same time it must be remembered that the contest of the americans was primarily for the definite legal rights of englishmen rather than for the more abstract rights of mankind which formed the platform of the french revolution hence arose the great inconsistency in the position of men who were engaged in a stern struggle for liberty at the same time that they themselves were holding human beings in bondage in england the new era was formally signalized by an epoch-making decision in november seventeen sixty nine charles stuart once a merchant in norfolk and later receiver-general of the customs of north america took to england his negro slave james somerset who being sick was turned adrift by his master later somerset recovered and stuart seized him intending to have him borne out of the country and sold in jamaica somerset objected to this and in so doing raised the important legal question did a slave by being brought to england become free the case received an extraordinary amount of attention for everybody realized that the decision would be far-reaching in its consequences after it was argued at three different sittings lord mansfield chief justice of england in seventeen seventy two handed down from the court of king's bench the judgment that as soon as ever any slave set his foot upon the soil of england he became free this decision may be taken as fairly representative of the general advance that the cause of the negro was making in england at the time early in the century sentiment against the slave trade had begun to develop many pamphlets on the evils of slavery were circulated and as early as seventeen seventy six a motion for the abolition of the trade was made in the house of commons john wesley preached against the system adam smith showed its ultimate expensiveness and burke declared that the slavery endured by the negroes in the english settlements was worse than that ever suffered by any other people foremost in the work of protest were thomas clarkson and william wilberforce the one being the leader in investigation and in the organization of the movement against slavery while the other was the parliamentary champion of the cause for years assisted by such debaters as burke fox and the younger pitt wilberforce worked until on march twenty five eighteen o seven the bill for the abolition of the slave trade received the royal assent and still later until slavery itself was abolished in the english dominions eighteen thirty three this high thought in england necessarily found some reflection in america where the logic of the position of the patriots frequently forced them to take up the cause of the slave as early as seventeen fifty one benjamin franklin and his observations concerning the increase of mankind pointed out the evil effects of slavery upon population and the production of wealth and in seventeen sixty one james otis in his argument against the writs of assistance spoke so vigorously of the rights of black men as to leave no doubt as to his own position to patrick henry slavery was a practice totally repugnant to the first impressions of right and wrong and in seventeen seventy seven he was interested in a plan for gradual emancipation received from his friend robert pleasance washington desired nothing more than to see some plan adopted by which slavery might be abolished by law while Joel barlow in his columbiad gave significant warning to columbia of the ills that she was heaping up for herself two of the expressions of sentiment of the day by reason of their deep yearning and philosophic calm somehow stand apart from others thomas jefferson in his notes on virginia wrote the whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submission on the other the man must be a prodigy who can retain his manners and morals undepraved by such circumstances i tremble for my country when i f- reflect that god is just that his justice cannot sleep forever; that considering numbers nature and natural means only a revolution of the wheel of fortune an exchange of situation is among possible events that it may become probable by supernatural interference the almighty has no attribute which can take side with us in such a contest Henry Lawrence, that fine patriot whose business sense was excelled only by his idealism, was harassed by the problem and wrote to his son, Colonel John Lawrence, As follows, you know, my dear son, I abhor slavery. I was born in a country where slavery had been established by British kings and parliaments, as well as by the laws of that country ages before my existence. I found the Christian religion and slavery growing under the same authority and cultivation. I nevertheless disliked it in former days there was no combating the prejudices of men supported by interest the day i hope is approaching when from principles of gratitude as well as justice every man will strive to be foremost in showing his readiness to comply with the golden rule not less than twenty thousand pounds sterling would all my negroes produce if sold at public auction to-morrow i'm not the man who enslaved them they are indebted to englishmen for that favour nevertheless i'm devising means for manumitting many of them for cutting off the entail of slavery great powers oppose me the laws and customs of my country my own and the avarice of my countrymen what will my children say if i deprive them of so much estate these are difficulties but not insuperable i will do as much as i can in my time and leave the rest to a better hand stronger than all else however were the immortal words of the declaration of independence we owe these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness within the years to come these words were to be denied and assailed as perhaps no others in the language but in spite of all they were to stand firm and justify the faith of seventeen seventy six before jefferson himself and others had become submerged in a gilded opportunism it is not to be supposed that such sentiments were by any means general nevertheless these instances alone show that some men at least in the colonies were willing to carry their principles to their logical conclusion naturally opinion crystallized in formal resolutions or enactments unfortunately most of these were in one way or another rendered ineffectual after the war nevertheless the main impulse that they represented continued to live in 1769, Virginia declared that the discriminatory tax levied on free Negroes and mulattoes since 1668 was derogatory to the rights of free-born subjects and accordingly should be repealed. In October 1774, the First Continental Congress declared in its Articles of Association that the United Colonies would neither import nor purchase any slave imported after the first day of December next and that they would wholly discontinue the trade on april sixteenth seventeen seventy six the congress further resolved that no slaves be imported into any of the thirteen colonies and the first draft of the declaration of independence contained a strong passage censuring the king of england for bringing slaves into the country and then inciting them to rise against their masters on april fourteenth seventeen seventy five the first abolition society in the country was organized in pennsylvania in seventeen seventy eight virginia once more passed an act prohibiting the slave trade and the methodist conference in baltimore in seventeen eighty strongly expressed its disapproval of slavery two the negro in the war as in all the greater wars in which the country has engaged the position of the negro was generally improved by the american revolution it was not by reason of any definite plan that this was so for in general the disposition of the government was to keep him out of the conflict nevertheless between the hesitating policy of america and the overtures of england the negro made considerable advance the american cause in truth presented a strange and embarrassing dilemma as we have remarked in the war itself moreover began the stern cleavage between the north and the south at the moment the rift was not clearly discerned but afterwards it was to widen into a chasm massachusetts bore more than her share of the struggle and in the south the combination of tory sentiment and the aristocratic social system made enlistment especially difficult in this latter section moreover there was always the lurking fear of an uprising of the slaves and before the end of the war came south carolina and georgia were very nearly demoralized in the course of the conflict south carolina lost not less than twenty-five thousand slaves about one-fifth of all she had georgia did not lose so many but proportionally suffered even more some of the negroes went into the british army some went away with the loyalists and some took advantage of the confusion and escaped to the indians in virginia until they were stopped at least some slaves entered the continental army as free negroes three or four facts are outstanding the formal policy of congress and of washington and his officers was against the enlistment of negroes and especially of slaves nevertheless while things were still uncertain some negroes entered the regular units the inducements offered by the english moreover forced a modification of the american policy in actual operation and before the war was over the colonists were so hard pressed that in more ways than one they were willing to receive the assistance of negroes throughout the north negroes served in the regular units but while in the south especially there was much thought given to the training of slaves in only one of all the colonies was there a distinctively negro military organization and that one was rhode island in general it was understood that if a slave served in the war he was to be given his freedom and it is worthy of note that many slaves served in the field instead of their masters in massachusetts on may twenty ninth seventeen seventy five the committee of safety passed an act against the enlistment of slaves as inconsistent with the principles that are to be supported another resolution of june sixth dealing with the same matter was laid on the table washington took command of the forces in and about boston july three seventeen seventy five and on july tenth issued instructions to the recruiting officers in massachusetts against the enlisting of negroes toward the end of september there was a spirited debate in congress over a letter to go to washington the southern delegates led by rutledge of south carolina endeavoring to force instructions to the commander-in-chief to discharge all slaves and free negroes in the army a motion to this effect failed to win a majority nevertheless a council of washington and his generals on october eighth agreed unanimously to reject all slaves and by a great majority to reject negroes altogether and in his general orders of november twelfth washington acted on this understanding meanwhile however lord dunmore issued his proclamation declaring free those indentured servants and negroes who would join the english army and in great numbers the slaves in virginia flocked to the british standard then on december fourteenth somewhat to the amusement of both the negroes and the english the virginia convention issued a proclamation offering pardon to those slaves who returned to their duty within ten days on december thirty washington gave instruction for the enlistment of free negroes promising later to lay the matter before congress and a congressional committee on january sixteenth seventeen seventy six reported that those free negroes who had already served faithfully in the army at cambridge might re-enlist but no others the debate in this connection having drawn very sharply the line between the north and the south henceforth for all practical purposes the matter was left in the hands of the individual colonies massachusetts on january sixth seventeen seventy seven passed a resolution drafting every seventh man to complete her quota without any exception save the people called quakers and this was as near as she came at any time in the war to the formal recognition of the negro the Rhode island assembly in seventeen seventy eight resolved to raise a regiment of slaves who were to be freed at enlistment their owners in no case being paid more than one hundred and twenty pounds in the battle of rhode island august twenty ninth seventeen seventy eight the negro regiment under colonel green distinguished itself by deeds of desperate valor repelling three times the assaults of an overwhelming force of hessian troops a little later when green was about to be murdered some of these same soldiers had to be cut to pieces before he could be secured maryland employed negroes as soldiers and sent them into regiments along with white men and it is to be remembered that at the time the negro population of maryland was exceeded only by that of virginia and south carolina for the far south there was the famous lawrence plan for the raising of negro regiments in a letter to washington of march sixteenth seventeen seventy nine henry lawrence suggested the raising and training of three thousand negroes in south carolina washington was rather conservative about the plan having in mind the ever-present fear of the arming of negroes and wondering about the effect on those slaves who were not given a chance for freedom on june thirtieth seventeen seventy nine however sir henry clinton issued a proclamation only less far-reaching than dunmore's threatening negroes if they joined the rebel army and offering them security if they came within the british lines this was effective assistance of any kind that the continental army could now get was acceptable and the plan for the raising of several battalions of negroes in the south was entrusted to colonel john lawrence a member of washington's staff in his own way colonel lawrence was a man of parts quite as well as his father he was thoroughly devoted to the american cause and washington said of him that his only fault was a courage that bordered on rashness he eagerly pursued his favorite project able-bodied slaves were to be paid for by congress at the rate of one thousand dollars each and one who served to the end of the war was to receive his freedom and fifty dollars in addition in south carolina however lawrence received little encouragement and in seventeen eighty he was called upon to go to france on a patriotic mission he had not forgotten the matter when he returned in seventeen eighty two but by that time cornwallis had surrendered and the country had entered upon the critical period of adjustment to the new conditions washington now wrote to lawrence i must confess that i am not at all astonished at the failure of your plan that spirit of freedom which at the commencement of this contest would have gladly sacrificed everything to the attainment of its object has long since subsided and every selfish passion has taken its place it is not the public but private interest which influences the generality of mankind nor can the americans any longer boast an exception under these circumstances it would rather have been surprising if you had succeeded nor will you i fear have better success in georgia from this brief survey we may at least see something of the anomalous position occupied by the negro in the american revolution altogether not less than three thousand and probably more members of the race served in the continental army at the close of the conflict new york rhode island and virginia freed their slave soldiers in general however the system of slavery was not affected and the english were bound by the treaty of peace not to carry away any negroes as late as seventeen eighty six it is nevertheless interesting to note a band of negroes calling themselves the king of england's soldiers harassed and alarmed the people on both sides of the savannah river slavery remained but people could not forget the valor of the negro regiment in rhode island or the courage of individual soldiers they could not forget that it was a negro crispus who had been the patriot leader in the boston massacre or the scene when he and one of his companions jonas caldwell lay in Funeral hall those who were at bunker hill could not fail to remember peter Salem, who when major pitcairn of the british army was exulting in his expected triumph rushed forward shot him in the breast and killed him or samuel poor whose officers testified that he performed so many brave deeds that to set forth particulars of his conduct would be tedious these and many more some with very humble names in a dark day worked for a better country they died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them far off three the northwest territory and the constitution the materialism and selfishness which rose in the course of the war to oppose the liberal tendencies of the period in which washington felt did so much to embarrass the government became pronounced in the debates on the northwest territory and the constitution at the outbreak of the revolutionary war the region west of pennsylvania east of the mississippi river north of the ohio river and south of canada was claimed by virginia new york connecticut and massachusetts the territory afforded to these states a source of revenue not possessed by the others for the payment of debts incurred in the war and maryland and other seaboard states insisted that in order to equalize matters these claimants should cede their rights to the general government the formal cessions were made and accepted in the years seventeen eighty two to six in April 1784, after Virginia had made her session the most important, Congress adopted a temporary form of government drawn up by Thomas Jefferson for the territory south as well as north of the Ohio River. Jefferson's most significant provision, however, was rejected. This declared that after the year 1800, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in any of the said states other than in the punishment of crimes, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted to have been personally guilty this early ordinance although it did not go into effect is interesting as an attempt to exclude slavery from the great west that was beginning to be opened up on march three seventeen eighty six moreover the ohio company was formed in boston by a group of new england business men for the purpose of purchasing land in the west and promoting settlement and early in june seventeen eighty seven dr manasseh Cutler one of the chief promoters of the company appeared in new york where the last continental congress was sitting for the concrete purpose of buying land he doubtless did much to hasten action by congress and on july thirteenth was passed an ordinance for the government of the territory of the united states northwest of the ohio the southern states not having ceded the area south of the river it was declared that there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory otherwise than in punishment of crimes whereof the party shall be duly convicted to this was added the stipulation soon afterwards embodied in the federal constitution for the return of any person escaping into the territory from whom labor or service was lawfully claimed in any one of the original states in this shape the ordinance was adopted even south carolina and georgia concurring and thus was paved the way for the first fugitive-slave law slavery already looming up as a dominating issue was the cause of two of the three great compromises that entered into the making of the constitution of the united states the third which was the first made being the concession to the smallest states of equal representation in the senate these were the first but not the last of the compromises that were to mark the history of the subject and as some clear-headed men of the time perceived it would have been better and cheaper to settle the question at once on the high plane of right rather than to leave it indefinitely to the future south carolina however with able representation largely controlled the thought of the convention and she and georgia made the most extreme demands threatening not to accept the constitution if there was not compliance with them an important question was that of representation the southern states advocating representation according to numbers slave and free while the northern states were in favor of the representation of free persons only williamson of north carolina advocated the counting of three-fifths of the slaves but this motion was at first defeated and there was little real progress until governor morris suggested that the representation be according to the principle of wealth mason of virginia pointed out practical difficulties which caused the resolution to be made to apply to direct taxation only and in this form it began to be generally acceptable by this time however the deeper feelings of the delegates on the subject of slavery had been stirred and they began to speak plainly davy of north carolina declared that his state would never enter the union on any terms that did not provide for counting at least three-fifths of the slaves and that if the eastern states meant to exclude them altogether the business was at an end it was finally agreed to reckon three-fifths of the slaves in estimating taxes and to make taxation the basis of representation the whole discussion was renewed however in connection with the question of importation there were more threats from the far south and some of the men from new england prompted by commercial interest even if they did not favor the sentiments expressed were at least disposed to give them passive acquiescence from maryland and virginia however came earnest protest luther martin declared unqualifiedly that to have a clause in the constitution permitting the importation of slaves was inconsistent with the principles of the revolution and dishonorable to the american character and george mason could foresee only a future in which a just providence would punish such a national sin as slavery by national calamities such utterances were not to dominate the convention however it was a day of expediency not of morality a bargain was made between the commercial interests of the north and the slaveholding interests of the south the granting to congress of unrestricted power to enact navigation laws being conceded in exchange for twenty years continuance of the slave trade the main agreements on the subject of slavery were thus finally expressed in the constitution representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons including those bound to servitude for a term of years and excluding indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons article one section two the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the congress prior to the year eighteen o eight but a tax or duty may be imposed not exceeding ten dollars on each person article one section nine no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due article four section two with such provisions though without the use of the question begging word slaves the institution of human bondage received formal recognition in the organic law of the new republic of the united states just what is the light in which we are to regard the slaves wondered james wilson in the course of the debate are they admitted as citizens he asked then why are they not admitted on an equality with white citizens are they admitted as property? then why is not other property admitted into the computation such questions and others to which they gave rise were to trouble more heads than his in the course of the coming years and all because a great nation did not have the courage to do the right thing at the right time End of section five.